Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 4 through 14. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. When I gave orders and cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelmiah the priest, Zaldak the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataneah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thank you to God. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless oh. you. Thank you. It's good to see everyone. Welcome. Happy Valentine's Day, as well as a happy new year to everyone. Uh, as Pastor Dohi mentioned, uh, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent. And this coming Sunday will be the first Sunday of Lent. And I want to remind you that we will be moving one hour ahead for our services. So next Sunday, uh, please come at 10 a.m. for our worship service. Um, if you come at 11, there will still be things going on, but you will miss the worship service. So please, just a reminder, uh, we will begin at 10 a.m. beginning next Sunday. Also, immediately following the service, we will have a time of our Lenten FGs. And these will be just gatherings where we will focus on uh, fellowship, a chance to meet with a few people to catch up. And it will all end uh, before noon each Sunday. And again, I want to ask those of you who have been in FGs uh, to show some love to your FG leaders and to volunteer to be a facilitator uh, for our breakout rooms uh, during this season. And uh, this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, I want to invite all of you to join us for prayer 
for our weekly prayer meeting. So it would be a great opportunity if you haven't been to uh, one of our prayer meetings yet. This would be a great Wednesday to begin as we enter into the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday. All right, please pray with me. God, we thank you again uh, for your presence in our lives. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for this day that you have made where we can gather to worship you. Now that may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. So this is now the seventh and last in the series of sermons on the book of Nehemiah. Along with the FG materials on the book of Ezra, we've been looking at the last part of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. You remember it all began with the unexpected decree by Cyrus, the Persian king, who allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. Then over a period of decades in three successive waves, led by the strong and capable leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the people returned from exile and captivity to the promised land of their ancestors. Back in Jerusalem, the people in fits and starts worked to restore temple worship and to rebuild the wall surrounding the city. We too have been rebuilding worship and community in the time of COVID, and now we are starting once again to think about rebuilding or re-rebuilding as we prepare for an eventual return to in-person worship and fellowship at what it means for us to be reincorporated in our worshiping life together again. Just as a recap of the book of Nehemiah, you remember that Nehemiah heard about the broken down walls in Jerusalem. And after fasting and praying and planning, by the grace of God, he received the permission, the authority, and the resources necessary to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Despite opposition from local authorities, despite internal divisions, Nehemiah was able to rally the people and the wall was completed in a mere 52 days, a feat so improbable that even their enemies had to acknowledge that it was the work of God. Then last week, Pastor Eric preached on chapter eight about how the people worshiped in joyful celebration in what those who attended will probably remember as the best worship service ever. Chapters 9 through 12, which we are not going to look at, detail some of the promises the people made in light of that worship, including a long confession and a renewal of commitment and obedience, and they begin to implement plans for the resettlement of Jer Jerusalem and the faithful maintenance of worship. At the end of chapter 12, the people have consecrated the walls and they've committed themselves to the covenant of God. And the chapter ends with these words, with everything in place. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due to the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. The rebuilding appears finished, not just the rebuilding of a wall, but the rebuilding of the people of God 
and their worship of God. This would have been a good ending. You almost wish this is how the book of Nehemiah ends. The wall has been dedicated. There is joyful worship. The people commit themselves and make provisions for ongoing worship. Happily ever after. The end. But that's not how the book ends. There is one more chapter, a part of which you just heard. And sadly, we see that the promises that the people had made to God and to one another all break down and Nehemiah has to return to Jerusalem from his day job and call the people back to their promises. In fact, in our reading, you just heard about the first of several related problems that Nehemiah has to deal with. And it begins with Tobiah. Remember him? A few weeks ago, I called him Sanballat's hype man, and he's someone who has a long history with Nehemiah. He was greatly displeased when Nehemiah first showed up to help out the people of Israel. He repeatedly jeered and despised the repair work on the wall. He tried to discourage the workers by mocking them, mocking the structural integrity of the wall, accusing them of rebellion, and even by threatening violence. When none of that prevented the work from being finished, he tried to lure Nehemiah outside, possibly to assassinate him. And when that failed, he tried to lure him into the temple to ruin his reputation, either as a coward or to frame him for sacrilege. This is someone who has consistently worked against Nehemiah and his efforts to rebuild the wall and the people. And yet, during Nehemiah's absence, he's managed to weasel his way into a large space in the temple grounds. Worse, the room that he's given used to be the storage room where they kept the offerings and other materials for the worship of God. The high priest was responsible for allowing this to happen. And it seems to be because the two of them became related, probably through the marriage of their children. We know, for example, that at least one of Tobias's sons was also related to a member of the Jewish nobility, the house of Meshulam, and he was able to use that relationship to further his influence on the people. I can remember decades ago, I was working at a church and I was warned about someone whom people described with a Korean idiom, that this person was someone who was good at picking the right line. He was good at picking the right line. Now that's a good thing when you're at a grocery store and trying to get out as quickly as possible. But it meant that he was someone without convictions, an opportunist, someone who instinctively saw the winds of change and managing to get himself in line with those who could help him. From Nehemiah's perspective, Tobiah is a politically shrewd person, someone who easily and carefully shifts his allegiances for self-preservation and self-advancement. And the contrast between himself and Tobiah is clear. Nehemiah used whatever powers and connections he had for the betterment of the people, while Tobiah exercised his powers for his own self-interests. 
cozying up to the very people he had mocked and threatened to destroy. So when Nehemiah discovers that Tobiah has made his home on temple grounds, he kind of loses it. He throws out all of Tobias's furniture and does a deep anti-Tobiah cleansing of the room so that it can once again be used for worship. Nehemiah says his actions were motivated by anger and implies that he was driven by a desire to restore worship in the temple. And we might even hear here an echo of what Jesus will do centuries from now in cleansing the temple of the merchants. But Nehemiah's actions are also directed at Tobiah personally, probably. Maybe a little payback to the guy who has been a thorn in his side throughout his time in Jerusalem. Now, related to this misuse of the temple space is the neglect of the temple servants, the Levites and the singers who are responsible for maintaining worship. The displacement of offerings, food, and worship resources by giving that room to Tobiah compromised and deprioritized worship. And that may have led the people to reduce or to cancel their support of the Levites and others responsible for worship. And without that promised support of the people, the Levites and the singers were forced to return to their fields to work, to find other work just to survive. And so Nehemiah confronts the officials. He appoints new leaders to be in charge. And in what should be very familiar, he once again prays to God, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. The rest of the 13th chapter details two further related problems that Nehemiah faced, that of Sabbath breaking and intermarriage with idol worshiping neighbors. It must have all been quite disappointing for Nehemiah because the people knew what was right. After that awesome worship of great joy and celebration in chapter eight, they had made a number of clear promises to God and to one another about how they would order their lives together under the covenant of God. But they broke every single one of their promises. In chapter 10, they promised, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. But in chapter 13, Nehemiah discovers just the opposite. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. In chapter 10, they had promised to support the Levites. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every year, year by year to the house of the Lord and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. But in chapter 13, Nehemiah discovers that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. In chapter 10, they had promised to keep the Sabbath. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. But in the 13th chapter, Nehemiah discovers, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. In chapter 10, they had promised, we will not neglect the house of our God. 
But in chapter 13, Nehemiah is forced to confront those in charge, the officials, and said, why is the house of God forsaken? So despite the wall being rebuilt, despite a great worship service and revival, despite commitments made, it all breaks down and Nehemiah has to forcibly reestablish order. His memoir and the history of the Jews in the Old Testament ends with these words. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. I want to just make one final reflection with you about Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah reminds us that the work of rebuilding is never finished. Discipleship, sanctification, ministry, these are not a one-time commitment or an event that is isolated, but an ongoing, lifelong pursuit of purity. The periodic neglect of worship and of breaking the Sabbath, these are nothing new. And old temptations, old opposition, whether greed, lust, anger, apathy, pride, busyness, once overcome, will keep on coming back, like Tobiah, taking advantage of changing situations to reinsert itself on holy ground and disrupt the life of worship and discipleship. Those of you who own homes, you know that it's a constant rebuilding. Without constant watch and ongoing repairs, the house will fall apart. Small repairs that get neglected can turn into massive headaches. It's the law of entropy. And it's the same with our lives together. It's the reality of faith. It requires constant rebuilding and recommitment. A healthy spiritual life one day or even one year does not automatically mean or guarantee another healthy day tomorrow. The completion of the wall and the restoration of the worship service is only a beginning. It was meant to reconstitute the people of God whose lives would be centered around the ongoing worship of God. But the people got careless or perhaps they were tired or perhaps that, that this was the end and there was nothing else to be done. Or perhaps they simply slowly returned to their old ways of living among and like their neighbors. They compromised their holiness with the people around them. They neglected the worship of God. They ignored the Sabbath and they intermarried with unbelieving locals. They did all of this, I suppose both intentionally and unconsciously to advance their own socioeconomic status and standing in their wider culture rather than over concern for the shalom and the spiritual well-being of their whole community. 
And it seems to me that this is how most of us struggle with our faith. Sunday in worship or travel soccer for the kids, purchasing another luxury item or giving more generously to missions, regular commitments to an FG or to your own ease and comfort, relationships built on loyalty and sacrifice or acquaintances with those who will advance your career. I don't have easy or simple black and white answers for you, but Nehemiah did. In regard to Tobiah taking up residence in the temple, he threw out all of his furniture and ordered a cleansing of that space. In regard to the Levites, he confronted the officials and set new leaders in charge. In regard to the breaking of the Sabbath, he confronted the nobles and then put up guards and closed the gates. In regard to intermarriages, he really, really lost it. He cursed them, he beat them, he pulled out their hair and made them take an oath that they would not do this anymore. Now, many people interpret Nehemiah's actions as driven by zeal for purity and see it as exemplary. Nehemiah saw compromise, he saw breaking down of those promises and he took swift, violent actions to rectify the situation immediately. And some people admire him for these actions, for his stance against laxity, for his uncompromising push for purity. Essentially, his solution was to impose martial law to enforce the purity of worship, of giving, of Sabbath keeping, and of preventing intermarriage. However, just because this is what he did does not mean that it's necessarily right. Remember, I said to you from the very beginning that this is a memoir. Nehemiah tells us what he did, believing he had acted rightly and leaves himself to the judgment of God. And perhaps that's all that any of us can do at the end of the day. But notice that there is never a word from God for Nehemiah. We do not hear God telling him, well done, good and faithful servant to any of these actions. Nehemiah recognized the promises were broken and something had to be done. And perhaps he thought he could rebuild those promises in a similar fashion as he had rebuilt the wall. But as I've been considering Nehemiah's actions, I wonder if he might've done things differently. In earlier crises, he fasted and he prayed and he planned and he responded rationally and he, he himself identified and joined with the work of the people in that restoration. But now he acts more like a typical governor imposing his will. Did he really need to curse and pull people's hair out? Would putting up guards and shutting down the gates really move people to honor the Sabbath and worship God? Those of you who had a chance to study Ezra 9 this week in your FGs, you saw that when Ezra faced a similar problem, he pulled out his own hair, he tore his own clothes, 
and he fasted and he prayed a prayer of confession, identifying himself with his people. That seems to me a better response than the ones taken by Nehemiah. What the end of the book of Nehemiah and the end of the history of Israel points out is that you cannot ultimately legislate worship and the love of God and neighbors. You cannot achieve the purity of worship by excluding everyone you disagree with. And the law might temporarily keep order, but it cannot permanently change hearts. You can post guards on the walls to stop people from selling and buying on the Sabbath. You can threaten people with fines and punishment for breaking the Sabbath. That might work for a while, but it will not lead to the sincere and joyful observance of the Sabbath and the praise of God. Or worse, people might keep the Sabbath so strictly and legalistically that they will later crucify someone for supposedly breaking that Sabbath by doing works of healing. I suppose we could make up laws for membership in the church so that you have to read the Bible every day or pray a number of hours or attend a certain number of worship services on Sunday or join a committee in order to keep your membership. But what would that accomplish? You can frighten, threaten, scream, and make your kids eat their vegetables. But once they're out of your house, and I am told that kids will eventually leave the house at some point, they won't eat it. The imposition of law will at best only produce superficial goodness and obedience. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's hopeless or that we ignore God's laws or that we give up calling people to repentance and to the work of rebuilding. We absolutely must continue the work of rebuilding and continue to call God's people again and again and again and again back to holiness and purity. As Peter admonishes us, be holy in all your conduct because God is holy and we are his children. I remind you that we are now God's temple. We are God's temple. We are where God dwells just as he dwelt in the temple before. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body, that is our body together collectively, the congregation is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us, whom we have from God. The church is the locus of the presence of God, of God's revelation, of God's good news, of God's forgiveness. What God did through the temple temporarily and partially, God now does in and through the church and in the community of believers permanently and thoroughly. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we continue to rebuild and to align ourselves, to realign ourselves with the work of rebuilding and restoration and reconciliation. As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, all this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation.
So that's why I, the pastoral staff, urge you every week to remain diligent and vigilant in your discipleship and worship. But as you all know, our efforts, no matter how well-intentioned, will not and cannot keep us from sin. You cannot stop the erosion away from holiness on your own. But there is a hope against the failures, the backsliding, the setbacks, the discouragements, and the breaking down of promises. Believe it or not, there is a helpful word in our book of order regarding this. In the book of order, it says this, the church affirms Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbum Dei. That is, the church reformed, always to be reformed, according to the word of God in the power of the spirit. I'm told that the Latin is more correctly translated as the church reformed and always being reformed, always being reformed according to the word of God. In other words, we do not do the reforming. This is not about the church changing itself to fit in with whatever might be trendy or popular, nor is it about the church reforming itself. The passive verb tells us that it is God who is doing the reforming. The church is the recipient of God's reforming work as we submit ourselves to God's word and to God's spirit. This is our only hope. The history of Israel and the Old Testament ends with worship temporarily and forcibly restored. It's not a happily ever after ending. The story ends unsatisfactorily with the problem not really resolved. And if this were the whole story, it really would be depressing that we can only worship God under threat and only temporarily. But God is not finished. What we cannot do for ourselves, God must do and will do for us. And it is only with this hope that we can carry on the work of rebuilding. God will finish the work that he has begun in us. That is the promise. In the church, in the world, as well as in us individually. God and God alone will do the permanent work of permanently changing our hearts. Nehemiah appeals to God to remember him three times just in this last chapter. And his last word and prayer is remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. That is a good prayer, but it's doubtful that Nehemiah imagined how God would answer that prayer. God will remember, but the good God will remember isn't going to be the good work that Nehemiah did on the wall or the measures he took to restore worship in Jerusalem. 
God will answer this prayer for good 400 years later with Jesus Christ, his only son. He is the only good we have. His goodness, his righteousness is the only appeal that we can make of God. Not our rags of unrighteousness, but the good that only God can give to us in Jesus Christ. And this is our only hope. Remember us, O oh, our God, for good. Not any good that we can claim for ourselves, but the perfect good that you have promised us in Jesus Christ. Remember us, O oh God, for good, for your good. Pray with me. Lord, as we are now about to enter into the season of Lent, help us to focus our attention on Jesus Christ, our Lord, and upon his suffering and upon his sacrifice and what it means for us to more faithfully follow him and to more faithfully order our lives together under him. Help us to be diligent as we continue to rebuild our lives together. Help us to have the hope that you are with us and that you will forgive us even as we continue to break our promises to you and to one another. Help us to recommit ourselves to you and to one another even as we stumble. Help us to get up again and again in the light of your forgiveness, your power, your goodness. Change our hearts from the inside out. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.